I'm with the Arkansas uh, Faith and Ethics Council. Uh, shortly, I don't spend a lot of time talking about what we do. We represent you uh, in the legislature, you know, lobbying for good laws and opposing those that run contrary to our biblical values, uh, represent you before other public bodies in the media and other places. Uh, also, we try to have good information available to local uh, groups and churches that are dealing with issues, whatever social moral issue it might be, because today, more than ever, information is power. And if we don't have good, reliable, solid information, we simply aren't going to accomplish a lot, and sometimes we're going to look foolish. So uh, we always want to be able to provide that to you and uh, willing to get that to you. There are some sign-up sheets. There's two here on this front pew, and then there's two at the Welcome Center. Uh, if you'll give us your email uh, information and address, we'll get our updates to you. We won't misuse that. We won't share the addresses with anyone else. We won't use it for fundraising, but it will help keep you informed. And the kind of information you will get will be uh, along the lines of what I will share with you this evening. Now, this evening session is going to be quite different. It'll be informal, discussional. It'll be uh, questions and answers. But what I want to talk about are the ballot issues that we're facing this year in Arkansas. Uh, and uh, there, there are three of them right now, unless lawsuits uh, succeed in knocking those off. Two, medical marijuana, so-called medical marijuana. They're really not medical marijuana. They're recreational marijuana disguised as med medical marijuana. And then also a casino gambling amendment. So we'll discuss those kind of, I'll give you the, the, uh, some of the important facts about those. Also, we'll talk about religious liberty threats that are coming uh, pretty hot and heavy against us, and they will even grow uh, as, as uh, some things evolve, like the homosexual agenda and the transgendered issue. So I think you'll find it interesting. If you'll come, we'll, uh, we'll share that information with you. But that's the kind of information you'll get if you get these uh, emails from us. Now, what I want to talk about in the little bit of time we have, and Mike said I had to let you out after at least an hour and a half. No, I'm just teasing. I want to talk about a defending objective truth in a subjective world. And we see that as, as a real issue today and a real challenge for the church. Now, quickly, what do I mean by subjective and objective? A subjective truth is really no truth at all. Subjectivity is an opinion. It's a feeling. An objective truth is, in fact, a truth. It's a reality. If I say a peacock's a beautiful bird, that's a subjective opinion of mine. But if I say a peacock is a bird, that's an objectionable tr truth. It is an irrefutable fact. And so that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Now, have you ever noticed when we use the word truth in writing or speaking, we always precede it with the def definite article V and never the indefinite article A? I mean, when we think one of our children has done something wrong and we want to find out, we don't say, hey, tell me a truth, do we? Tell me the truth. When the bailiff in court uh, asks for the witness to raise his hand and repeat after him, he, he doesn't say, uh, I swear to tell a truth. No, he says, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. What, what I'm getting at, folks, is without even maybe realizing it, we recognize that there are only singular truths about anything. There aren't multiple truths. Multiple truths is an oxymoron. And for the church, we better understand that the truth is in here. It's objective. It's not subjective. But you know, we find some today, even some in the church, who want to substitute their subjective truth for the objective truth. Because why? Because, well, it doesn't feel right. Feelings have nothing to do with it. Objective truth is objective truth. Now, let me give you a disclaimer, okay? I'm not a trained theologian. I'm not a polished pulpiteer. 
I've never been to the cemetery, I mean seminary, excuse me. That was on purpose, folks. <laughs> My training is legal. I'm an attorney. In fact, I'm a former prosecutor, and the good news is I don't recognize any of you. <laughs> I say that to tell you I'm a simple man with a simple message, and my messages often sort of come from the work that I do, and the work that I do mainly is in the culture wars out there, dealing with the homosexual agenda and abortion and alcohol and other drugs and gambling and pornography and race relations. And so the urgency you sense in me at times is because I understand the lateness of the hour and how important it is is that we really buckle up and do the job we should do now lest you think that i may be off mark here let me show you that there's someone much smarter than me that recognizes this problem uh, john macarthur uh has been a pastor for 50 years he's a bible scholar he's renowned he's rep he's uh, 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 very respected he's written or edited 500 books and study guides Sort of knows what he's talking about. Listen to what he says. He says, when I began in ministry nearly half a century ago, I fully expected I would need to deal with the assaults against Scripture from unbelievers and worldlings. I was prepared for that. Unbelievers, by definition, reject the truth of Scripture uh, and resist its authority. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In Romans 8, we see that. But from the beginning of my ministry until today, I have witnessed and had to deal with wave after wave of attacks against the Word of God coming mostly from within the evangelical community. Over the course of my ministry, virtually all of the most dangerous assaults on Scripture I've seen have come from seminary professors, megachurch pastors, charismatic, charismatic charlatans on television, popular evangelical authors, Christian psychologists and bloggers on the evangelical fringe. The evangelical movement has no shortage of theological tinkerers and self-styled apologists who seem to think the way to win the world is to embrace whatever theories are currently in vogue regarding evolution, morality, or whatever, and then reframe our view of Scripture to fit this worldly wisdom. The Bible is treated like silly putty, pressed and reshaped to suit the shifting interests of popular culture. To make their attacks more subtle and effective, the forces of evil disguise themselves as angels of light and servants of righteousness. That's why the most dangerous attacks on Scripture come from within the community of professing believers. These evil forces are relentless, and we need to be relentless in opposing them. That's John MacArthur. He's recognized the problem. The problem is those within the church who want to substitute their subjective feelings and opinions for God's Word. Folks, God's Word is the only capital we have to spend out there. We don't have enough money. We don't look good enough. We're not popular enough. We're not athletic enough. The truth is the only capital we have. And if we're willing to concede that this isn't true, that this isn't objective truth, then we simply don't have a leg to stand on, do we? So it's a very practical message I want to bring to you. We cannot quit defending the truth. And we must not let others uh, uh, adulterate the truth and change it so that we have nothing to base our, uh, our approach to the world on. Now I'm going to look at some scriptures in Romans, uh, the first chapter, uh, beginning with verse 18, if you want to look that up. It, while you're looking that up, uh, I want to tell you about a college student I read about. She was uh, a very devout Christian, very, very firm believer. She had a, uh, a science professor who, uh, for some reason, just could not stand Christianity or God or anything about that. And he knew about her faith, and 
He always was willing to give her a hard time when he had a chance. He passed through the student union one day. She was reading the Bible. So he stopped said, what are you reading about? She said, I'm reading about Jonah. Well, he laughed. He knew enough about the Bible to know who Jonah was supposed to be. He says, is that, is that the character that lived in the fish for three days? She said, yeah. He said, that's impossible. No way that could happen. She said, no, it really did happen. He said, no, there is simply no way he could survive in there with all those hostile, uh, adverse uh, uh, environments and consequences. She said, look, he did. And she wanted to get rid of him. She said, I tell you what, when I get to heaven, I'll look Jonah up, I'll ask him, and then I'll know exactly how he did it. Well, he asked, what if Jonah's not in heaven? She said, then you ask him. <laughs> now, first of all, she probably regretted saying that to him because <laughs> it looked a little judgmental, but I think she was probably sick of him and, and did that, so I guess she can be forgiven. I'm going to begin with verse 18. Try to get through verse 32 if we have time. And I know, we, you know we've got some time limits here. Uh, but I think we can certainly get in uh, uh, the most important uh, of, those, uh, of those scriptures. So I'm going to begin, if I can get to it myself, with verse 18 and make comments as we go along, uh, if I may. And I'm sorry about the voice. I think the... Uh, by the way, it's not from cheering for the Razorback. Are, are there any other fair weather fans like me? I left when it was 21 to 20, and TCU had the ball on the 50-yard line. I told my wife, ah, it's over. Then I wake up this morning and look at the paper. It says, Hogs shocked TCU in two overtimes. So there you go. My wife said, see, you should never give up. should never give up. So I guess I'm a fair-weather fan. Uh, verse 18, through, uh, you know, verse 18 only. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, a couple of things here quickly to, to notice. What is it that triggers God's wrath and his anger and his fury? It's wickedness. It is evil. God hates evil. God hates evil because wherever evil flourishes, his creation is being harmed. God doesn't like that. You know something else? We are to hate evil too. Uh, in uh, Romans 12, 9, it says, and I love these three little simple sentences that are linked together. In Romans 12, 9, it says, uh, let love be sincere or genuine. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And that, what that tells me is if we really have love for our neighbor, love as we love ourselves, we have got to hate, literally have enmity, not for people, but for the things that are happening to people that eat them up that are harmful to them. we got to hate that. It just talks about having a passion. And then we got to cling to what is good. I love the verse. It's so simple to understand and uh, so applicable. Now, another thing. Notice it said men suppress the truth. And I used to not notice this for many years. One day it dawned on me what that really means. Folks, you can't suppress something you don't know about. Uh, you can't suppress, I mean, I'm sorry, you, 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 you suppress something that you know about. It's not that these, these men were ignorant or stupid. They knew the truth, yet they intentionally suppressed the truth and supplanted it with their own truth. Why? So they could pursue their wickedness. So they set aside the truth. They knew about it. Now, um, what, is the, uh, what is the truth that they suppress? Well, verse 19 and 20 says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. 
what did they suppress? They suppressed the knowledge of God. Um, I think we've all heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian philosopher, statesman. Uh, he was a prisoner of the Gulag Archipelago, which was the Soviet Union's system of political prisons for over 20 years. He survived that somehow. He went on to write many books and histories of his country and, and great philosophical writings. Listen to what he said. He said, over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well now 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. Upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up 60 million, yes, 60 million Russians died at the hands of Stalin. Most of them starved to death. I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Just like in the Soviet Union, this culture that's described in Romans 1 forgot God. They suppressed God. They set God aside to pursue their wickedness. Now, maybe you say, maybe they just were ignorant, Larry. Maybe they did not know. No. No one is, is uh, un, uh, unaware of God's presence, unless they're mentally unstable and have no cognitive ability, because verse 20 tells us that nature itself, the creation, testifies to God. Now, everyone may not understand it's the sovereign God, the triune God that we worship, but they know there is a God. It is an innate knowledge that God has planted in man. Innate knowledge that there is a God. So they were without excuse, as the scriptures say. Verse 21 and uh, 22 and 23. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Listen, nature abhors a vacuum. If you pull God's truths, Judeo-Christian principles, out of a culture, something is going to rush in, is it not, to replace that. This culture removed God and what rushed in? Wickedness and evil. America, I'm afraid to say, is withdrawing that as well. And what is rushing in is wickedness and evil. Now, that causes a culture to get into a death spiral. Is America in a death spiral? I'll leave that to you to answer. But I will say this much. We ought to go to Arlington Cemetery and apologize. We really should do that. I fear for the state of our culture. Now, 24 and through 27 verses here is where it gets kind of sticky, folks, for some people. Verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Now, 
There are some, there are even some in the church who get angry at just the reading of these scriptures. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they have suppressed God's truth about this, about homosexuality, and run it through their personal filter and reach their own counterfeit truth based on nothing more than their feelings. And the, the thinking runs along these lines. If John and Sue can get married, then why can't Bill and Fred? Bill and Fred love one another. Why can't they commit their love to each other, have a ceremony, and have it recognized by the state? Well, thanks to the courts, they can do that today, but it's wrong. As one of your former pastors, who was also my former pastor, Mark Talbert, used to say, that's wrong simply because it's just plain wrong. That's wrong. It is wrong to supplant supplant that truth. Look, it's not my model of marriage. It's God's. Genesis 1 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Now, folks, except today with modern science technology, two men have never been able to be fruitful. Two women have never been able to be fruitful. It simply is impossible. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, to underscore the importance of this model of marriage, Jesus repeated this quote in Matthew 19, almost word for word. That's how important it is. Listen, it's a hard truth today for some people, but it's the truth nevertheless. Now, there are a number of reasons that we need to defend traditional marriage, biblical marriage, God's model of marriage. For one thing, the health and stability of the family, which is the basic building block of any culture, is at stake. Make no mistake about it. This will hurt the family and definitely damage uh, uh, its institution. And folks, for anybody that thinks this is going to be limited to two, two people, regardless of their gender, is crazy. You probably read in Oklahoma, a mother married her son and daughter. Literally. It will not stop. Once you have redefined marriage or thrown out the definition of marriage, anything is possible, any kind of configuration. And they're already talking about it. They're already talking about expanding the law even more to include that. Another reason we need to defend it, because the homosexual and transgender agendas are being used as stalking horses to strip us of our religious liberties. If you don't believe that, come tonight and I'll explain to you. I'll give you some hard and fast reasons in actual cases where that's happening, and that is the design to, for it to continue to happen. And here's perhaps the most important point. If I suppress or reject God's truth about a matter and substitute my own personal feelings and, obje- and, uh, and, uh, and beliefs, I've essentially called God a liar. Haven't I? Yes, I have. That's actually what I'm doing. Now, let me stop here just for a minute. Folks, I have debated this issue on college campuses, in the media, in town hall meetings, in every kind of conceivable venue. And I am not talking about any need for us to be hateful or have enmity. I am not. But we have to be bold in proclaiming the truth. I don't hate these people. I don't have enmity for them. I'm not a homophobe. I'm not a bigot. But I'm going to defend God's truth. 
And I'll try to do it as lovingly and as kind and as humbly as I can with them, but I will not substitute their truth for God's. It simply is not going to happen. So we got to be careful how we don't do it like the Pharisees with condescension and, and arrogance and judgmentalism, but do it, excuse me, do it with love and humility as Christ always tried to approach himself. Listen, if God's truth about marriage is wrong, then how can we vouch for the virgin birth? Or how can we, we hold out the, uh, the uh, soundness of the, the, the uh, crucifixion and resurrection? And how can we defend the sanctity of life? If that truth is wrong, how can we vouch for the credibility of any of this? Do you see? We've destroyed the credibility, or certainly hampered the credibility, of the entire work. It's not a cafeteria plan where you go in and pick and choose what you want. It's, it's all or nothing. And for us, it has to be all. Now, uh, I'm not going to read verses 28 and 32 to conserve time, but if you read that, you'll see it's, America is beginning to look a whole lot like the culture that's described in those verses. And uh, I think that should awaken us uh, to the seriousness uh, of the, the hour. Now, the situation that John MacArthur described that I read earlier, it's nothing new. Uh, it's, it's, it's age old. Uh, Paul, in his farewell letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, uh, talked about this. I think it's important for us to see because we're seeing the same kind of thing today, the same kind of thing that John MacArthur recognized. Verse 1 of of, uh, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearance, at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. In other words, don't give in, Timothy, to the whims of the day. Don't give in to the focus groups or the public policy findings. Stick with the truth. Do it wholeheartedly and without wavering. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Now, what are some of the fables or myths that Paul might be alluding to here that are uh, in existence today and flourishing in some places? Well, here's one. All religions and faiths are just different paths to heaven. Every one of them can get you there. Well, my word says that Jesus said, I, I am the way. The truth, there's that definite definite V again, isn't it? The definite article. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Was Jesus lying? I'm not in a position to say that. I would not dare say that. I think, in fact, and see, that's another hard truth for people. Why is that the only way? Because God said it was the only way. That's why it's the only way. How about this one? Man is basically good and can achieve righteousness in his own strength. Well, Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, man is not basically good, folks. In fact, he's damaged goods. Now, we're made in the image of God. I think sometimes because of that, we do tend to do good things. For instance, I don't think every soldier that's fallen on a grenade to save his comrades... Maybe not all of them were believers. But over the long haul, the pattern is that man cannot 
do it on his own. He is tainted. Sin has tainted him. And he needs a Savior. Listen, folks, here's the bottom line on this. If man is basically good, he doesn't need a Savior. He doesn't. He needs a Savior because, again, he's been tainted by sin. Oh, I love this one. Jesus was a good man, but not the Son of God. (laughs) For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Folks, listen. If Jesus was not and is not the Son of God, then I can say this with all confidence. He was the greatest charlatan and con man that ever walked the face of the earth. He's led more people astray than anyone else. God was and is, uh, Jesus is the Son of God. Make no mistake about it. But some people just can't believe that the Son of God came and became man incarnate. Okay, there's a story of a man who went to see a friend, an old music teacher. And he came in and sat down and he asked his friend, he said, you know, I just want to know what the good news is for today. The old teacher picked up a hammer and hit a tuning fork. He said, that's A. He said, that's A today. That was A 5,000 years ago, and it'll be A 10,000 years from now. And he said, the soprano upstairs sings off key. The tenor across the hall falls flat on his high notes, and the piano downstairs is out of tune. He struck the note again and said, that is A, my friend, and that is the good news for today. The truth is unchanging. What's the good news for today? Same as it was 5,000 years ago, same as it will be in 10,000 years, same as it'll be in 10 million years. This is the good news. It doesn't change. If it changes, it's no good to us. It simply isn't. It's no good to us. This is the good news. We must zealously guard the truth of this. We don't want to alienate people. We don't want to push them away. But folks, if we change this for the sake of being popular and liked, we might as well be at the lake today fishing because we're not going to accomplish the Great Commission. Now listen, in terms of accomplishing the Great Commission, we're not alone. The Holy Spirit is our partner. But let me ask you a question. When the Holy Spirit opens a person's mind and softens up the heart and gets it ready for conviction, if we come with an inconsistent message... If our message varies from day to day, from person to person, what is that person to do? I mean, it's like nailing jello to the wall. It can't be done. Our message has to be consistent day in and day out. That is the good news. Man needs a Savior. It's as simple as that. And man needs the truth. And what does John say about the truth? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And if you don't know the truth, the inverse of that is you will be a bondage to sin and you'll be a drag on the world. Man needs the truth. Now, there may be someone here who needs the truth today. I got good news for you. It's right there. It is right there. It is as simple as that. If you want to be free, free from the bondage of sin, free from guilt, doubt, disappointment, failure, broken relationships, or other baggage, you can uh, carry it around if you want to, or you can be free with the good news. Uh, you know, I harken back to the old snake oil salesman, you know, who would come into town with their little carnival-like thing and 
you know, do a little entertainment and <laughs> sell the elixir, you know, that, that is, is, is available to cure everything possible from, from gout to cancer, right? Well, that was a charlatan. The author of this book is not a charlatan. He actually has a cure-all, and it is, it is his truth, and we need to know that. Now, it hasn't been an evangelistic message per se, but again, someone here who's without Christ, who's under conviction, don't worry about the message. You worry about the truth about getting it right and getting crashed in your life. Maybe that you need to recommit. You can do that where you are down front here. I think Mike will be here to, to uh, 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 welcome anyone during the invitation. Or there may be someone here who's looking for a good church home. And this very well may be the place for you. And I will make you a promise. If you'll come back next week, you'll hear a good message. Okay? I'm going to pray for us. And then, Mike, are you here? Somebody's here. I hope I'll turn it over to <laughs> All right. Father, um, we just come to you and we thank you, Father, for uh, this simple but in a sense profound word, God, because really there is much at stake. There is much for the church to do in defending the truth, proclaiming the truth. There are hard truths for some people, yes, because it's not matching up with their feelings or their opinions, God, but it's not their feelings that matter. It's your truth and your plan of salvation and your plans for people's lives. So God, I just pray that this church and the church with a big C, Father, would become even more devoted and dedicated, Father, to defending the truth, proclaiming the truth, telling people about Christ, the Christ who saves, the Christ who redeems, the Christ who gave it all for us. I just ask you to be here this hour. Any move that needs to be made for Christ, Father, I just pray that that person, that individual would do it this very hour. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.